it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, May the 10th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show live from the Big Apple, New York City, Fox News headquarters. Glad to have you all here. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, if you're not familiar with my CV. I'm also a Fox News contributor. I'm up here in New York for some TV. It's on Outnumbered earlier today. I've got America's Newsroom tomorrow. I've got Gutfeld later in the week. And I'm also host of this daily radio show, three hours every day. They fly by, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's every weekday. And if you can't catch us live as we air, we have a podcast available every day, on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Everything you need right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social at GuyBensonShow. Pretty easy. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. On today's program, here's the lineup. Juan Williams will join us coming up in the next hour. We'll see how Juan is feeling about a few political controversies of the day. I suspect that we might have a few disagreements, as we often do with Juan here. Dr. Nicole Sapphire will also join us, a big study out of Harvard that is simply illustrating, quantifying, confirming the obvious about the absolute policy catastrophe that was closed schools and shuttered classrooms for a year and a half based on no good science. In fact, in the face of, in defiance of, the real science. We will get Dr. Sapphire's reaction to that important study coming up later. Plus, in our final hour, the 5 o'clock happy hour, Eastern Time, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, we always enjoy chatting with him, and we will have him back here on today's program. As I mentioned in the open, I was on Outnumbered today. I was back on the couch The actual couch for the first time in it felt like forever because every time I've co-hosted that show, which is noon to one every weekday on Fox News Channel, I do it about once a month. And every time since I want to say February of 2020, I've done it virtually where I'm in a box and we're all in boxes together. And just a few weeks ago, they reverted back to the circular white couch where the one lucky guy, that's the hashtag, me in this case, is planted right in the middle, surrounded by talented and lovely female colleagues. And I was looking forward to this return to the couch, and it was fun to be there with everyone today. And I actually posted on my Instagram story, at Guy P. Benson, This video of me walking into Studio M, which is this massive studio, and I like it's a shot of my feet, like my shoes walking, then I pan up to reveal the outnumbered set, and I put music to the clip, and it's that song by Foreigner, It Feels Like the First Time, 
It feels like the first time. Because it kind of did. It kind of felt like the very first time all over again. I was kind of nervous. I'm like, I sit here, right? And we do this, and then it all came back to me, like riding a bike. But it was interesting today because the show was cut basically in half by the president of the United States. From noon Eastern to 1230, he was about half an hour late, but he delivered a speech and then took a few questions about inflation. And the White House had sort of billed this as he was going to lay out his plan on inflation. I remember thinking, what else can he possibly say? He's going to blame Putin again. He's going to blame the pandemic again. He's going to attack Republicans again. He's going to attack oil companies and private employers again. What else is there? Aside from blame shift and a few like razzle dazzle moves off to the side that really don't deal with the problem at all. But they were telling us, oh, there's going to be, you know, announcements or whatever. They don't want to get ahead of the president. And then he came out. We were sitting there and I was taking notes on my notepad on the couch with the ladies. And what struck me about what the president said today was every single thing that came out of his mouth, which were at times a bit jumbled. He was not in his best way today. Even when he's in his best way these days, it's not. Exactly great, but he was listless. He was dull. He had no passion. It felt like he didn't even believe the stuff others had written for him in the first place. But he read the words with mixed results off the teleprompter. And I commented to Harris and Emily and Kaylee and Cheryl, those were the four ladies on the couch today, I said, I could have basically written and delivered this exact speech preemptively for him. It was just a mishmash of all the things he's been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks. There was nothing meaningful or new at all. What he was trying to do was juxtapose his plan, if you can call it that, with this magic invented plan of the Republican Party that is made up. He is cherry picking one or two things out of one Republican's document. One guy. Senator Rick Scott, the other Senator Scott. Biden said he's from Wisconsin. Fact check. He is not. Senator Rick Scott is from Florida. He will be our guest on this show tomorrow. As a matter of fact, I want to ask him about some of this. I think he was thinking of Ron Johnson is my guess. Ron Johnson's actually up for election this year, unlike Rick Scott who has like two bullet points on a piece of paper and they've decided that they're going to run totally against it because there's some low-hanging fruit that they're going to try to basically apply to the entire Republican Party writ large and pretend like there's this really important choice for voters and voters need to reject the dangerous Republican plan or whatever. Everything that Biden said was predictable, and he said it before, and they just repackaged it and rolled the guy out there to say it again. It'd be one thing if it was working. But in our new Fox News poll last week, President Joe Biden has an approval rating on the economy of 36 percent, and it's even lower on inflation. He is 25 points underwater on the economy. Joe Biden is. And some of the other polling shows it even worse than that. 
deeper underwater. And he has sunk himself into those depths with exactly these precise talking points that he regurgitated for the umpteenth time in this speech that was, you know, anticipated as an important speech. It was not important at all. It was barely a speech. Just a repackaged reiteration of the exact same stuff that has not worked and is misleading, tangential, tendentious in many, many cases. And it's like, all right, if that all if that's all he's got, the cupboard is bare. They just have to close their eyes and pray that things somehow get better. No thanks to them between now and, let's say, September, because we're now within six months of the election. A lot of this is baked in. I think the line that might be remembered most from an otherwise forgettable appearance by the president was his response to a question. A reporter asked him at the end, do you and your do you and your administration, your policies bear any responsibility for the inflation problems? And he gave sort of this rambling answer that didn't really address that question. So the reporter followed up. Cut 29. Do you take any responsibility for inflation in this country? Do you take any responsibility for your policies? I think our policies help, not hurt. Cut and clip that soundbite. If you're a Republican running basically anywhere in the country, if you're an ad maker for the GOP in crucial Senate races or gubernatorial races or swing House races, the American people have an approval rating of this man and his policies on inflation in the 20s. And he just went on national television and said, I think our policies have helped, not hurt. I'm sure he thinks that, but almost no Americans actually do. Almost no swing voters certainly believe that. And it just, I think, underscores the reality that the Democratic Party, led by the Biden administration, are bereft of solutions. Their policies have made things worse. Biden was saying, oh, you know, we, we think it's helped. Jen Psaki at the White House, what was it, yesterday, said, who could have ever anticipated this, this level of inflation? Well, I would say Larry Summers, the Democratic economist and Obama cabinet secretary, would be one of them because he said so publicly. Last February, not this past February, last year, and they all turned their noses up at him and said, oh, Poo-poo, pish-posh, get out of here, Larry. This is transitory. And then, whoops, not so transitory. Larry Summers was right, and he predicted it a long time ago, more than a year ago. And here's Saki. Who could have ever predicted? Well, I just named one guy that you all know very well. Biden was pretending on this whole blame shift thing. He wanted to blame everyone but himself. Everything but his policies for the problems that the country is facing on the inflation front, even though Steve Ratner, here's another Democratic economist from the Obama years. We told you about this a few weeks ago in the New York Times. He wrote that a major driving factor of this inflation problem and this inflationary moment, which has been really rapid and acute, goes back to the $2 trillion of wasteful spending that Democrats passed on a party-line vote at the very beginning of this administration. 
He said it was a historic mistake in light of what's happening. Biden doesn't want to live up to any of that. He doesn't want to own up to any of that. He wants to blame and deflect and hope that people follow the squirrels off in every direction and not hold the party responsible that is in power and controls all of Washington, D.C. Now, Biden, in his effort to push this off to the Republicans, who control nothing in Washington, D.C., he was, again, trying to pretend that the Republicans really just want to get back into power to raise taxes on people. Just sit for a moment. When have you ever heard Republicans say, we are running to raise taxes? Biden was saying, we Democrats, we want to reduce taxes for the American people, and we want to reduce the deficits. Nonsense. I mean, it's just laughable. The Democrats are the party of higher taxes, higher spending, higher deficits. It's what they do. They're trying to take credit for some emergency spending ending like, oh, look at the look at the deficit cutting we're doing when their proposals make it go up, up, up for the next decade. To say nothing of build back better, which failed thanks to one or two senators who saved their party from themselves. But here is Biden earlier. Cut 31. Listen to this. The Republican plan is to increase taxes on the middle class families, let billionaires and large companies off the hook as they raise profits, raise prices and re profits at record number, record amounts. Mm, well said, Mr. President, as usual. But I think the point he's trying to make and the key was the very beginning. The Republican plan is to raise taxes on the middle class. He's talking about this Rick Scott thing, one bullet point on one document that the rest of the party has rejected. And Rick Scott, even today on Fox News, rejected it himself. He said, those are some of my ideas that are worth debating, but it is not the Republican plan. And I want to delve into that with him tomorrow when we have him on the show. But they're trying to take this one element of a plan no one has endorsed and, in fact, has been explicitly rejected from Mitch McConnell on down. The Republicans saying we are not going to raise taxes on the American people, which is kind of the whole brand of the Republican Party. And Biden wants you to believe, oh, the Republicans have this secret desire that they're harboring to come in and raise taxes on the middle class. No. That is simply not true. And it is very rich to hear that coming from Joe Biden, who has championed Build Back Better, his $5 trillion inflation bomb that he wanted to detonate in the middle of inflation, despite everything, he was going to do it anyway, if Democrats had gotten that bill to his desk. Every House Democrat except for one, all of them, voted for Build Back Better. In Build Back Better, were tax increases for the middle class, for millions of middle class families, and tax breaks, special tax loopholes, reinserted into the tax code for blue state millionaires. That is the Democratic plan, not some weird plan on some paper somewhere that no one has talked about, something that they've actually all voted for. And every one of them in the Senate was ready to line up and vote for it, and then Joe Manchin wouldn't do it. The rest of them were prepared. Cinema and Mansion, who are not up in 2022, they were the only ones who blocked this thing. All the other ones on Capitol Hill, 98% 
of all the Democrats on Capitol Hill are in favor of and wanted to vote for or did, in fact, vote for Build Back Better, an actual inflation bomb, five trillion more in spending. And bona fide, verified, right there in black and white, tax increases on millions of middle class people. And Biden sort of like, oh, we'll just jujitsu this thing and pretend that's what Republicans are for. Nope. His approval ratings are what they are for a reason. Even if he were a talented orator, I don't think he could turn around reality with words. He's also not talented at talking. So it's sort of the worst of all worlds. Which brings me back to this. The Democrats just have to sit around and pray that things get better. No thanks to anything that they're doing or have done. That's their game plan. Hope. Heading into November. Good luck with that. It's the Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Fox News was racist before coronavirus. They are racist during the coronavirus. Fox News will be racist after the coronavirus. I'm Guy Benson. That was the voice of someone that you are going to get to know a lot better in the coming weeks, months, perhaps years. Kareen Jean-Pierre is about to take over for Jen Psaki at the end of the week as White House press secretary. Remember, Joe Biden campaigned to heal and restore the soul of America. And his outgoing press secretary won't condemn the doxing of Supreme Court justices and agitators in their neighborhoods, in their yards, at their houses. And the new press secretary called Fox News racist repeatedly. She called APAC, the bipartisan pro-Israel group, racist. That's a fun pattern that we might see more of. I wonder if she will call questions that she doesn't like racist. Gosh, I wonder. But at least she's not an election truther. Oh, wait, she is also that. She tweeted that the 2018 election in Georgia was stolen from Stacey Abrams. It was not. That's a conspiracy theory. She also said the 2016 presidential election was stolen on Twitter. Another conspiracy theory. I thought election trutherism undermined our very democracy and threatened the country. I guess some people are allowed to say that sort of thing. I wonder if the Ministry of Truth might look into this. Don't hold your breath. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. I want to play this flashback clip for you. This was Chuck Schumer on the steps of the Supreme Court in 2020. Threatening two justices by name 
about certain cases and telling them that there would be basically consequences if they didn't vote in these cases the right way. Here is now the Senate Majority Leader two years ago, cut 24. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Well, here we are. Two years later, there's been a leak at the Supreme Court, the likes of which we've never seen before, which has had perhaps the intended effect of having the Supreme Court justices on the conservative side of the majority doxed, their home addresses published on the Internet, and angry mobs showing up at the houses of now three Supreme Court justices. It was Chief Justice Roberts over the weekend. It was Kavanaugh. Apparently that was like an especially angry one. And then Justice Alito, who we believe has written this decision on the Dobbs case, the abortion case that will be released at some point soon. They were at Alito's house yesterday because their addresses were dug up and put out there into the public realm for people to go not – exercise their First Amendment right out front of the Supreme Court, but to go and harass and intimidate these justices at their houses for the purpose of intimidation, which is a federal crime. What I just described to you is a federal crime. And the White House has been unable to explicitly condemn it. In fact, Jen Psaki danced around it, not condemning it for like two days. Ooh, there's a lot of passion around this, she said. A lot of passion, a lot of fear. And, you know, folks are just getting fired up, basically. So, you know, it's peaceful and that's uh, how things go. It reminds me of when Biden, remember when they chased these left wing psychos, chased Kirsten Cinema, a Democratic senator, into the bathroom with cameras because they wanted her to vote a certain way on something? And she wouldn't, but they tried, including harassing her and intimidating her in a bathroom. And filming her in a bathroom. And the president just sort of shrugged. Well, look, it's part of the process. I guess publishing the private home addresses of Supreme Court justices and sending unleashing mobs to the houses, that's now, I guess, what part of the process. It's disgusting. They finally at the White House kind of condemned it a little bit, but not really. Senate Democrats allowed a unanimous vote Last night to say, okay, let's get these people and their families some protection, some more protection, because obviously they need it. Because there's a lot of people all whipped up by statements like we just heard there from Chuck Schumer himself. And this winking, effective endorsement from the White House on this stuff. You're going to pay, said Schumer. Right. There's a whirlwind. You won't know what hit you. And here we are. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, gave a very good speech on this issue yesterday. I thought it was superb. I want to play you some of it. He begins by upbraiding Chuck Schumer for what he said and drawing a direct line between that point to today. Here's McConnell, cut 16. Two years ago... 
the Senate Democratic leader rallied a crowd on the steps of the Supreme Court and threatened judges by name if they did not resolve an abortion case the way he wanted. Here was the quote. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. This incitement triggered rare public rebukes from the Chief Justice himself and even the liberal American Bar Association. Yeah, so Roberts came out after that and was like, that is a bridge way too far, Chuck. And the ABA left-leaning did the same thing. That is clearly over the line, the rhetoric that was used there by Schumer. Of course, now it's worse. You've got people at the houses of these justices. McConnell talks about that. He explains how it appears this is a violation of federal law. Apparently, the White House didn't really care about that when they were more or less allowing this to go on with a green light. It should not have been hard for the White House to say, we strongly disagree with this opinion. We're going to continue to fight for these rights for women or whatever their talking points are going to be. But do not publish people's addresses. Do not go to their homes. But they couldn't say that. It's like when Maxine Waters was saying, if you find these people in the Trump administration out in public, get in their faces and hound them out. Hound them out of supermarkets and gas stations and restaurants or whatever. She, I'm paraphrasing. And people did that. They would send these flash mobs into restaurants to harass and attack members of the Trump administration or Republican members of Congress. Antifa attacked Tucker Carlson's house while his wife was home, which was terrifying. The DHS secretary at the time, Chad Wolf, they went to his house. He's got young kids. This sort of thing has been normalized by the crowd that pretends to care from time to time when it suits their interests about norms and institutions. So McConnell then talks about the rhetoric that's been ramping up around this issue just recently, cut 19. The senior senator from Massachusetts stood on the Supreme Court steps and shouted, quote, we're going to fight back. Democrats are renewing their calls to break the Senate in order to pack the court. They want to destroy two institutions for the price of one. One liberal Georgetown law professor helpfully summarized their mission as follows. He explained this past weekend that the key moral difference between this pressure campaign and the January 6th riot is that in this case, quote, now listen to this, the mob is right. So what has generated this reckless outrage? What is the Armageddon over which Democrats want to break the Senate, pack the court, and condone potentially illegal rallies outside judges' family homes? We will let him answer that question in a moment, but quick pause here. He quoted a Georgetown law professor. And the law professor, and I saw the tweet over the weekend. This guy went on a whole Twitter rant. This is a professor of the law at a supposedly prestigious law school. And he said that the difference between the insurrection, or whatever you want to call it, the January 6th riot, and the doxing of 
justices and the pressuring of justices. And there were blue checkmark people calling for people to like ransack the houses of Brett Kavanaugh and other justices. One said, let's take their stuff. And if they if they have to run away and send their families elsewhere, we'll take their stuff in front of their new hotel and we'll burn it. There were church services disrupted in recent days. Church services. Houses of worship vandalized. A pro-life center firebombed. And this Georgetown professor says, well, the key difference is, in this case, the mob is right. Basically, our mob is righteous. Our ends justify our means. And when the other side has a mob, that's a threat to the country. When our mob does mob stuff, it's good. What embarrassingly shallow, juvenile thinking from a Georgetown law professor who just put it out there. He sort of said the quiet part out loud, defending intimidation mob tactics Because at least it's his side, and his side is right. By the way, that's the same institution, I'll remind you, as we've talked about here on the show, Georgetown Law, that continues to suspend indefinitely another faculty member of theirs. I guess this guy was fine defending mob actions at the Supreme Court. That's fine for a Georgetown Law professor. But if you're Ilya Shapiro, a right-leaning libertarian faculty member, if you tweet a few things about... You know, a criticism of President Biden selecting a Supreme Court nominee based on sex and and race. That gets you suspended. We're like months into that suspension. What the hell is happening at Georgetown Law? I'll tell you what's happening. The mob is calling the shots at Georgetown Law. So McConnell at the end of that last clip asked the question. What is the Armageddon? What is the outrage that's precipitating all of this? And he answers the question by putting this abortion case, I think, into very important context. Listen to cut 20. Here's the case in question. Whether the state of Mississippi can enact an abortion law that would still be more liberal, more liberal than laws in Germany, France, and Switzerland. This is the case that's driving these hysterics. The possibility that abortion laws might begin to move away from China and North Korea and closer to Germany, France, and Switzerland. That's what prompted the call to destroy our institutions and surround judges' family homes. That's why a pro-life Nonprofit in Wisconsin got a Molotov cocktail through its window and activists call for disruptions of Sunday worship. Yeah, interrupting church services on Mother's Day. Certainly a great project of winning over hearts and minds. Of all the birthing people who might be in the pews on Sunday, Mother's Day of all days. McConnell points out correctly that the Dobbs case that is being considered by the Supreme Court, the Dobbs law, so this is Mississippi, the Mississippi law that is going to be upheld probably six to three, at least on that point, 
is still more liberal than the abortion laws of Germany, France, and Switzerland. It is a mainstream law by any reasonable definition. And yet, it is precipitating what we are now witnessing. The global outlier, the gruesome global outlier, really are the people in this country fighting for abortion on demand for nine months with no limitations. Wherever you draw the line of where life should start to be protected under the law, and I grant you it's a tricky question as we talked about several times last week. I lean in the pro-life direction. Some people say maybe the heartbeat starting at six weeks, that's the line. Maybe 12 or 15 weeks as you get into the middle trimester, 20 weeks, which is kind of the viability line. I think you can make arguments for any of those things. But the position of the Democratic Party, this is not my theoretical attack against them. This is what they have put into let this is what they have put into legislation, what they have introduced in a bill that they're going to vote on tomorrow in the US Senate. It is abortion on demand for any reason up to the moment of birth. That is the callous, appalling, ghoulish global outlier that is truly extreme and a view shared by very, very few Americans, which is another point that McConnell made next in this speech in Cut 22. Democrats' extreme position is radical on a global scale and wildly unpopular with the American people. Only 34% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases into the second trimester. That drops to 19% in the third trimester, but that is what Democrats' bill would allow in practice. Every Senate Democrat but two, and every House Democrat except a handful, have put their name on this as co-sponsors. That means 97% of Washington Democrats support a position that only 19% of Americans actually want. So I'll say that again. 97% of Democrats in Congress are co-sponsors of an outcome that has 19% public support. And notwithstanding inflation, energy insecurity, open borders, a violent crime wave, and a war in Europe, Democrats want to spend this week explaining their extremism. 97% of Democrats on Capitol Hill support an insane abortion regime that has the backing of roughly one out of five voters and is opposed by four out of five voters. And they have the audacity and the gall to call any of us, even one step to their right, more, you know, one step closer to protecting life in the womb at some point. They call us radicals and extremists. They call us anti-woman and misogynist, even though the vast majority of women fall into that category. McConnell also mentioned the Democrats are talking about, once again, trying to blow up the filibuster so they can pass this crazy nine-month abortion law. They're not going to do it. They don't have the votes to do it. Even some pro-choice senators are saying, no, thank you. Some Republican pro-choice senators saying this goes way too far. Here's an amendment that actually would codify Roe. How about this instead? Schumer said, nope, we're doing this truly radical thing. They said, okay, then we're a no. So they don't even have 50 votes, let alone 60. 
But let's say they did blow up the filibuster for this. That would make it a lot easier for the Republicans in the future to actually implement some federal abortion bans. I wonder if Democrats will even think about that. Do they, does this cross their minds or do they only get super angry about what's directly in front of their faces? Apparently, whatever's on their Twitter feed, which is not a reflection at all of real life or where the American people are on a bunch of issues, particularly this one. And on that point, I have a bit more to say, some CNN polling data that I want to share with you right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. I know the wish-casting hope of many Democrats and journalists, but I repeat myself, was that the abortion issue would be sort of the white knight that comes galloping to the rescue of the Democratic Party in November. And I thought that that was perhaps unlikely for various reasons, including abortion being a very complicated topic with complicated, complex public opinion stances on it. We told you last week about the Fox News poll that showed a solid majority of Americans in favor of this Mississippi law, even a slim majority in favor of the more restrictive Texas law on abortion. That Fox News poll gave Republicans a seven-point lead on the generic ballot. It was before this leak from the Supreme Court. CNN's new poll was taken after the Supreme Court leak, completely after the leak. They gave, in that poll, Republicans a seven-point lead on the generic ballot, identical, before and after. Isn't that a bit of a narrative buster? Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here at the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all along. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free of charge every single day on demand. I'm up here in New York for some TV. We were on Outnumbered earlier. I've got America's Newsroom on the calendar for tomorrow. I think a little Larry Kudlow action. Gutfeld upcoming as well. Might see John and Sandra on America Reports. Uh, Chock-a-block here while I'm, while I'm up in New York. Always enjoy that. Thank you for tuning in wherever you're listening. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. After a lot of gyrations... Over these last few trading days, the market was relatively flat today. The Dow closing down about 85 points to 32,160. With me now on The Guy Benson Show is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, welcome back. Always good to be with you, Guy. I'll look for you on TV tonight. Uh, excellent. Although I won't be on TV tonight because I'm going to a baseball game. How about that? Hey, you're my guy. Are you going to the Yankees? I am. I have not been to a Yankees game since pre-pandemic in the Bronx. So I am ready to go. I'm in New York. It's a nice day out. And I was like, you know, I'm here. I don't have TV this evening. I think I might just take the subway up to the Bronx and Watch them play, and hopefully they've been playing very, very well so far this season. They've exceeded my expectations so far. I'm, 
I'm still a little skeptical long-term for the season, but I'm enjoying this run while it's going, and hopefully they keep it going for me tonight. My my cell phone kept beeping last night because the Yankee pitcher uh, was approaching a no-hitter. Yeah, he was. What, seven and a third I think he got through? I mean, dominant yeah. performance uh, yesterday afternoon. And then it's the Blue Jays in town, so a division rival here tonight. So looking forward to that, and uh, fingers crossed. Juan, uh, let's talk politics here to get things going. Last night in the Senate, there was a unanimous vote, and I am glad that it was unanimous, to provide uh, additional security to the families of the Supreme Court justices because of everything that's happening and some of these, you know, uh, sort of threatening mobs outside some of their houses and stuff. I'm glad that there was not anyone on either side voting against this. Do you think this was an appropriate thing to to get these people that protection? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean— it's not just justices, unfortunately, and I think, you know, the far right is to be held responsible on this count. There's just so many guns now in the public sphere. Everybody who is in public life has more reason to have concern over their well-being, and I think that given the heightened polarization of our politics, uh, boy, I, I, I think public officials have every right to be protected. They're serving the public. They're doing their work, uh, agree with it or don't agree with it, but that's our system. And yeah. you can't have people being intimidated and bullied and expect the system to function. That's right. I, and that's why I was so angry about January 6th. That was an attempt to shut down the government's ability to do their duty under the Constitution, under our rules, under our process. And if you don't like an outcome, the solution is not to threaten and intimidate or bully or get violent. And look, I think that guns have been widely available in this country since the beginning of our country. I think what has changed is not the availability of guns, but maybe the repolarization in a a very damaging way, I think, of our politics. I mean, the, the thing is, Juan, I could not honestly, I could not imagine even if the Supreme Court were ruling on an issue that I cared about more than any other issue. And, you know, let's say Justice Kagan wrote the decision and it came down five to four or six to three in in the wrong direction, in my opinion. I would be angry. I would talk about the need to vote and, you know, get Republican presidents and Republican senates to get better, you know, justices on the court. I would maybe even make a sign and go to the Supreme Court and go out there and stand there and and. And chant. I've never done something like that, but I can imagine what I might do under certain circumstances. I would certainly use my platforms and the media to go out there and, and argue my case and make all of those points. I cannot imagine going on to the internet, onto some you know discussion or message board, find some right wing group that published Kagan's address at her house, and then go with a megaphone to her house. To scream at her and her family, her neighbors, like that is so far over a line in my view. I I just can't imagine why someone would do that and feel like they're a good person and also why they feel like that would be like appropriate or productive. I feel like it's counterproductive. Well, I mean, slow down. I mean, clearly protest is a protected First Amendment right in our country. Sure. So let's not say that it's not cool to protest. I think I didn't fact, say that. It, it is a release valve for a lot of pent-up political expression I agree. for people who otherwise 
don't have voice in our country or people who feel ignored or that they are being somehow treated unfairly in the political process. So I'm all for protest. I have no problem with it. Where you and I agree is there's a line. You have to respect people, and I don't think you want to, as I was saying earlier, bully and intimidate. Now, the problem here is, you, I don't know if you remember this, but when the original Roe v. Wade decision was written, it was written by Harry Blackman, and somebody fired a, a, a gun shot through his window. Uh, and, of course, we've seen people who are you know, opposed to abortion rights, engage in acts of violence. Uh, you know, most famously maybe George Tiller, that uh, Kansas, uh, Wichita, Kansas, abortion doctor who was killed. Was that in? Was that in '09? I think. Or yeah. And, like and, and by the way, Juan, I would say that the violence of late-term abortion does not justify violence under our system. You, we don't do vigilantism in this country when people no. when people bomb abortion clinics or firebomb a pro-life center, which is what appears to have just happened over the weekend in, in Wisconsin, whichever side's doing it, I think that's a, a bright line where we should not be whipping people into the type of frenzy where they're going to come after whether it's, you know, people in the medical system or people in the judicial system. It's just, uh, it's too far. And, and I would say, Juan, I agree with you about um protesting obviously it's a core fundamental first amendment thing i do think showing up at the house of a public official to try to intimidate them into changing their vote on something i think that goes way too far i think that's over the line in my opinion well hold on now because i mean we've seen this with nancy pelosi We've seen this with Chuck Schumer, people on the right protesting at their homes. And, and the left. We, we've actually seen lefties at these people's homes as well, and I have condemned yeah. it every time. I think sure. it should okay. not happen. Well, I think, you know what, I mean, I've been involved, you know, I've been in the news business a long time, and I've been involved in controversies, written things where all of a sudden... I remember. People are on my lawn. and like People uh, came to your house? Yeah, and I didn't like it one bit, but you know what, I, just, I mean... That's the reality. I mean, we are public figures, guy, and it may happen to you one day. And you just, you just say to yourself, you know, well, I, I get, you know? I get some bad stuff. I have not had, thank God, anyone come to my house. Uh, and well, I would, I mean, it's, you know, the what goes on. I think I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it. You know, for women, it is, especially women that we work with at Fox, it is sometimes just a sewer online of no, threats it's, and, it's and, unbelievable. and the kind of language. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. So people in public life, it's it's part of the deal for you, for me, um, and for others maybe even more so. But I don't think we should say you can't go and raise your voice. You can't be in public spaces. Definitely do not threaten. That's crossing a line. Yeah. That's the bright line that you were referring to. Well, I, there, I mean, there there is this federal law that says you can't go and harass a a judge to try to get them to change their vote. So I think that there might this actually might be illegal if they're crossing the line into going to someone's house where their kids live in a neighborhood where their neighbors are just, you know, average people. I think that we sign up for a lot, Juan. We sign up for a lot when we put ourselves out there and we give our opinions and we're on national TV and, you know, there's there's a lot to like about what we do and it's it's a fulfilling and exciting career. There's a downside that I don't really like to talk about very much because I, I don't want to make it about me or sound like I'm a victim. But, I mean, I get it. You get it. Women absolutely get it. There's some very 
ugly, nasty stuff that we all experience. And to me, I don't think that we should accept as part of the deal people showing up at your house. I can't believe people showed up at your house, Juan. I can't believe. That's that's disgusting to me. Well, it's a fact. and it, But let me just say, you know, the, the really intrusive ones were people of our uh, cadre, reporters with their cameras and their equipment. And, you know, because the kids, you know, you know my kids, guys, they were, you know, this is years ago. They were more, they were little guys at that point. And they were outside, you know, throwing the football around. And all of a sudden, these people are pushing and past them. It's like, what, the, what is going on out here? But anyway, I mean, I just, I think that one of the great aspects of being an American is that, you can speak out. You can be Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You can stand up and have your voice heard in the town square. Yes. I think that is wonderful. Yeah, go to the but town I just, square. I don't like intimidating people, and I don't like scaring people, and I don't like this stuff on the Internet that then I think, and here you might want to rein me in, but it seems to me that it feeds – it feeds into people who are not mentally stable. Well, that's part of the concern. Crazy thing. Yeah, that's part of the concern here, and that's where I'm really upset about the doxing, right? Like, you can go into the public square. You can show up at the Supreme Court. You can yell and you can chant. You can scream and you can wave your signs and you can vote and you can do all of those things and, and write letters to the editor and tweet and all of that stuff. I think when you start putting the private home addresses of people out there – and say, hey, this time, this place, here's the cross streets, here's the Google map, here we're going to drop a pin, this is where we're going, this is where so-and-so lives. I think that gets into a much darker realm than simply healthy pro-democracy protest. Right? I, I think that, that crosses a line into something else. I agree. I think you look, I think that, you know, your people are going to know where you and I live. I don't think it's any way to prevent that. If they are really, you know, if they persevere about it, they'll find out. But as I come back to repeatedly now, I think the intimidation, the violence, there's right. just no place for it. Clearly. It inhibits legitimate public discourse in our country. Guy, you and I disagree on a lot, but I've never, ever had an instinct that, oh, I've got to shout over or threaten Guy. That's nuts. I mean, that's really un, unhinged. Well, I do, and I will say, if you ever show up on my front lawn, I will assume it's because you want a drink or something. I'll say, come on in. <laughs> or right? maybe the Yankees won. Right, exactly. You're here to congratulate <laughs> me or something like that. Uh, so, I, And that's that's the type of visit I am more than happy to accommodate, and vice versa or whatever. We should we should probably uh, hang out and go to a ball game at some point. Juan, we have about a minute and a half left here in this segment I want to get your thoughts on the first lady going over the weekend. She was going to be in the in the neighborhood, so to speak, and then she crossed over into Ukraine. Uh, Speaker Pelosi did the same thing. We've seen some Republican leaders do the same thing. We've seen other world leaders do it. I was very happy to see the first lady standing in solidarity with the Ukrainians. Uh, do you think that between Jill Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and two cabinet secretaries, is that good enough, or do you think – we should find some way to get President Biden there, too. Well, that's the next level. Now, the question is about security, because if the Russians uh, had taken out the first lady, that's probably World War Three. That's probably that's the United States an act of war. going yep. to war. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it takes you back. Remember World War One and the prince and all that. Um, so the Archduke. Know, yeah, the Archduke. Now, 
recently, the head of the United Nations went to visit President Zelensky mm-hmm. in Ukraine, in Kiev, and the Russians actually sent a bomb that landed just blocks away. And again, I thought, wow, there's another potential trigger to a war, and of course, both sides having nuclear weapons, it's very dangerous. It's it's alarming. Close calls. But that's why I think, you know, I'm not in favor of sending President Biden. I don't know what it would accomplish at this point. I think the symbolism of having the First Lady there with the flowers greeting the Ukrainian First Lady, the fact that we're sending added and now even accelerated support and engaging in a Lend-Lease program, you know, something like we did in World War II. Yeah, the military the support is, I mean, speaks for itself. It's that's annual. that's the most important thing, more so than any of these, you know, visits, right? I, and I think that we can talk about optics, and I think there might be a benefit to having Biden actually on the ground there. But overall, the most important thing, I think, is the support to the Ukrainian military, the support with intelligence that obviously we've been giving them. And, uh, you know, May May could be a very interesting month. Uh, And and yesterday was a very significant day. We're going to keep watching all of that as it plays out in Eastern Europe. Juan Williams, our colleague here at Fox News, a Fox News analyst, columnist at the Hill. Thanks, Juan. You're welcome, guy. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So I saw this tweet today. From Vice News, and by the way, speaking of Twitter, Elon Musk apparently has said that when this deal is finalized for Twitter, he plans to unban former President Donald Trump. Trump has said he would not come back to Twitter because he's got his own thing. We'll see if he can resist the siren song of all those millions of followers on his former favorite social media platform. We'll see. But here's Vice News on Twitter today. Quote, You can't say gay in Florida schools, but Ron DeSantis is mandating teachers talk bleep about communism. Apparently, they want us to be very angry about this. You can't say gay in Florida schools, but the Florida government is requiring history lessons that portray communism in a bad light. To which I say, good. Number one, you can say gay in Florida schools. This is submoronic. No news organization should peddle disinformation like this. In fact, I wonder if the Ministry of Truth is going to get on this. Are we going to have a big warning on this tweet from the powers that be? Is Nina Jankowicz going to come down like Mission Impossible style from the ceiling at Vice News headquarters to say, I found some misinformation here? I doubt it. This is the type of misinformation that she and others like. But it is misinformation. You can say gay in Florida schools. The bill wrongly called Don't Say Gay, which is now a law. I have some problems with it. I've told you about them. It is not because you can't say gay in Florida or in Florida schools. That is a lie. And it's very lazy and stupid that they're reporting that as a hit on DeSantis here. And number two, if you're going to require the teaching of history, of course you should talk bleep about communism. We talk bleep about slavery. We talk bleep about Nazism. And yes, we talk bleep about communism for very good reason, because communism is an evil ideology responsible for the deaths of more than 100 million people. That's history, and it deserves to be portrayed accurately, which is to say badly, very, very badly. Another big hit on Ron DeSantis. 
swing and a miss this time from Vice News. Hopefully the kids will actually learn the truth about communism in Florida. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show from New York. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. All the resources there. It's our online home. You can also get the free podcast. That's every day. GuyBensonShow.com. With us is Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of Panic Attack. Dr. Sapphire, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me. I know you've seen this. I want to make sure that the audience hears about it, and then I want to get your reaction. This is a study that's gotten some play out of Harvard the last week or so where they looked at the impact of learning loss on children, and they compared different school districts, districts that were open during much of the pandemic, districts that were closed. And let me just read from the story. A new report on pandemic learning loss found that high-poverty schools – Both spent more weeks in remote learning during the 2020-21 school years and suffered large losses in achievement when they did so. Districts that remained largely in person, however, lost relatively little ground. The study analyzed achievement data from 2.1 million students in 10,000 schools across 49 states and found that districts that spent more weeks in remote instruction lost more ground than districts that returned to in-person instruction sooner. The, quote, striking and important finding was that remote instruction had much more negative impacts in high-poverty schools. And it found that when you put them side-by-side, in-person versus remote, the learning loss difference was not just incidental, it was acute, It was dramatic. The Harvard study also found that gaps in math achievement by race and school poverty did not widen the same way, not even close, in school districts in states like Florida and Texas that mostly kept schools open. And you look at what was happening to some of these kids in the study, quote, A district could provide, this was the analysis by the researchers, a district could provide a high-quality tutor to every single one of the students in a high-poverty school, and that still would not make up for the decline in learning, the learning loss that was found in this study. Very quickly, one more line. This is from a New York Times piece. On average, students who attended in-person school for nearly all of 2020 and 2021 – That school year, last academic year, which was almost exclusively in red areas, the schools that were closed for that entire school year were almost exclusively in blue areas run by Democrats beholden to teachers unions. So the kids who were fortunate enough to live in a state where the schools were open last year, they lost about 20 percent worth of a typical school year's math learning during the study's two year window. But students who stayed home for most of last academic year, fared much worse. On average, they lost the equivalent of about 50% of a typical school year's math learning during that two-year window. Doctor, 
I just want to put all that out there for the audience. I know that you're probably nodding your head, maybe shaking your head like I told you so, because people like you have been on shows like this one for the better part of a year, year and a half, making these points, warning about precisely this type of problem. And a whole lot of people basically called us zealots and extremists who want kids to die based on no data, whereas the data actually shows the harm that they inflicted needlessly on a bunch of kids with the worst harm going to kids who could afford it the least in high poverty districts. Obviously, you might be able to tell from my voice this makes me angry. I'm glad that we are quantifying this stuff. I'm glad that the truth is coming out finally. But for a lot of these students, it is too little, too late, and there are a lot of adults who bear the blame. Well, Guy, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, But first of all, you're absolutely right. You had the New York Times last month finally stepping up and showing that a lot of these restrictions didn't really have any clinically significant benefit on community. And now you have a Harvard study showing what we have known, that keeping children out of school is detrimental for their for their physical health in the sense that it is not good for their development, but also their educational health. And all it really did was widen the racial poverty gap even further that has already existed before COVID. And I can tell you guys, we did not need a year of aptitude tests to tell us the children were not okay. In August, 2020, Fair Health put forth the insurance claims data that showed the rise of mental illness admissions and visits to the emergency department from children, from adolescents, and from adults. We knew they weren't okay being out of school, but what happened? The CDC's recommendations and their faulty studies continued to support the local legislators and cave to the teachers' union powerhouses keeping them out of there. And the only people who have suffered are the children. And furthermore, as the Harvard study points out, the children who who suffered the most are those in the lowest income areas, specifically in blue states, which kept their children out of school uh, without any, any viable data demonstrating a benefit to it. The CDC has completely failed in its ability to put forth any sort of randomized control trial or anything showing a benefit. They couldn't do it in 2020. They didn't do it in 2021. And here we are looking at the repercussions of their actions in 2022. Yep. And so many of these exact same people prattle on endlessly about equity and racial justice. And they were locking a bunch of kids of color out of classrooms for a year and a half based on absolutely no good data. In fact, the data was showing the opposite from states and municipalities and areas all over this country and private schools that were open and safe for that entire school year. And, of course, all the data out of Europe as well. And a bunch of people stubbornly looked at all of those facts and all of that science and said that sort of their gut instinct of what the science ought to be mattered more. And the CDC had their arm twisted by the teachers' unions. We actually have records of this in emails. The teachers' unions exerted their political influence. Randy Weingarten and her crew, the bosses, came in and overruled the science and injected their own political science into this thing and altered the official science. And we had Dr. Deborah Burks on this show last week, doctor. She told me a variation of what you just said. There was credible, good data in the summer of 2020, still early days, 
that was a clear indication of how terrible school closures were for kids. And she said she could not get the CDC to incorporate that meaningfully into their guidance, which then allowed those sort of guidelines, those outlines to come out. And it gave an excuse to a bunch of adults who wanted to keep schools closed to do so. How can the CDC expect to be taken seriously as an institution that looks out for the well-being of the American people when they were presented with compelling information about the well-being of children and basically did the opposite? Well, you know, to get back to Dr. Brooks for a moment, once upon a time, I had a, a tremendous amount of respect for this woman. And I can tell you that I I find it very unfortunate that it is only after she steps down from her position and she has a book coming out that she is finally being truthful and transparent regarding the data that was known and the harm that it was going to cause. But she did remain silent during that time when it mattered the most. And that was very that is very frustrating. And the same goes for Dr. Walensky, who is now the new director of the CDC. Before she took that role under the Biden administration, she was saying to her local municipalities that children should be in school. They don't require six feet of distance, and it is more important for them to be in school than anything else. What happened the moment she became CDC director? All of a sudden, children had to maintain six feet of distance with masks, and if they couldn't do that, they needed to stay home. And by the way, just just to jump in, I just want to underscore because that is actually an example that I hadn't thought of in a while. Of course, I knew it. We've talked about it here. This has been such a saga. You forget so many things that happen. I'm so glad you brought this back up. When Dr. Walensky was operating in a different capacity, she went on the record in emails in her own school district in Massachusetts saying you shouldn't do this. You don't need to do that. Basically, a lighter touch when it came to the schools. And then that went out the window when she was now part of the Biden administration where everything became political, including the science. And the thing is, doctor, the science didn't change between the guidance that she delivered in Massachusetts, sort of in those private emails, and then what she was saying in her organization and agency was saying publicly. It really can only be about the politics. And that's what I think makes me even angrier, because it's one thing to fog of war, get things wrong, particularly early on. Everyone's human. We all make mistakes. It is the doubling and tripling down on the mistakes, dressing the mistakes up as the real science while ignoring the actual real science. That crosses a line into something much closer in my book to unforgivable. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Guy, but and while the science didn't change, the virus certainly did, and our situation certainly did. We became we started getting less less virulent viruses. Right. They were causing less severe illness. We had more natural immunity, we had vaccines, we had treatments, and we had access to testing. Yet even in end of 2021, early 2022, you had schools which were going to remote learning. I mean, and the CDC did not stand up for the children. They allowed it. They were silent. And their silence has caused an infinite amount of harm. They have elected to give away their credibility, credibility that has been earned in over a century of work, and it will take a long time, if ever, to rebuild the trust of the American people to these public health institutions. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is my guest. And look, if you had to make me choose between schools being closed for in-person learning and schools being open but with mask requirements, 
I would choose the mask requirements, but it doesn't need to be a binary choice. You and I have also talked seemingly endlessly about the masking wars and how masking kids in schools was not a science-based solution. And again, the data came in from everywhere, from Florida and Texas and Scandinavia and France and the U.K., where especially younger children in schools, the masks made absolutely no difference when it came to the spread of this virus. But masks did actually have some harms when it came to development for certain kids. And some people in charge decided that didn't matter. What mattered was the feelings of adults, not the needs of children, and certainly not the data or the science. And so month after month, after they got dragged and forced into reopening the schools, they were still forcibly masking these children for no reason. And the good news is, finally, for the most part, that battle has been won by those of us who are in favor of optional masking in classrooms, and public opinion has really shifted on that. New Fox News poll has a two-to-one margin in favor of optional masking in schools. However, doctor, I didn't even realize this, but I, I saw a piece over the weekend in the Washington Free Beacon The Boston Public School District, which is a very large school district, is still requiring mandatory masking for all students and faculty to this day. And I juxtaposed that reality in Boston with a few photos. I put these up on Twitter of 17,000 people packed into the hockey arena, rooting on the Boston Bruins in the NHL playoffs, screaming their heads off after a goal, a bunch of maskless adults, that is fine in the city of Boston while the kids are still masked for no reason. And when it comes to pre-K kids and Head Start programs, they are, under the guidance from CDC, required to wear masks. The youngest of kids, based on federal guidance, there is still a lot of absolute madness out there, doctor, and the same people are making the same mistakes over and over again. I'll give you the last word. You know, Guy, instead of either to prove or disprove whether these cloth masks in schools actually work, which all existing data points to no at this point, um, the CDC has remained completely silent and has not put forth anything on it. But instead of doing what is right for children, we have failed them all along. Instead of doing what is right for for the children, I mean, you just have to look as far as the FDA right now. They have just said, well, you know what? We're really trying to get this vaccine out for children under the age of five, and we're going to lower the bar. We were going to still remain with the same safety data, but you know what? While we required at least the 50% efficacy for adults, we're going to lessen that for kids just so we can actually put one out for them. I mean, when the CDC says over 90% of children have some form of natural immunity, we already know that they are the least at risk, the otherwise healthy children, and they're the least likely to transmit the virus. It is criminal, it is upsetting, and it is certainly anti-science when you see these young children continuing to be masked. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified MD. She is senior Fox News medical contributor here at Fox News. Her latest book, a bestseller, is Panic Attack. Doctor, obviously I'm fired up about this. I know you are too. Always glad to talk to you about these issues, and I'm looking forward to next time. Thanks so much for always keeping the important issues in the front. Appreciate it. That's Dr. Sapphire on The Guy Benson Show, which continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, there's an op-ed in The Washington Post 
by someone called J.J. McCullough asking this question about millennials, which is my generation. Are millennial leftists aging into right-wingers? Interesting. He says, I was listening to a podcast the other day featuring two hard-left Americans in their late 30s. I won't name names, but you know the type. Socialist intellectuals who use terms like dissident to describe themselves. And he said the conversation mainly focused on a few themes. Number one, the kids today are too self-righteous and judgmental. Two, the Democratic Party is corrupt and uninspiring. Three, Donald Trump wasn't nearly as bad as everyone said. And four, I miss the good old days. It came off as a portrait of the millennial generation midlife crisising its way into voting Republican. And he goes on and talks about this phenomenon. I would like to see a lot more data behind this. I see that Xers, the generation ahead of me, they seem to be voting more conservative. I'm not sure if that's happening en masse among millennials. But it wouldn't surprise me if people start to have kids and see what's happening with the extremism on the left and sort of the woke stuff. That grates on a lot of people. So I hope this is true. I hope this is a shift within my generation away from what the Democratic Party and the left-wing movement is becoming. I will just say this because a lot of people in my age bracket came of age politically during some pretty turbulent stuff. So after 9-11, some wars, the financial crisis and crash of 2008, and then, of course, Barack Obama and the rise of Obama. I never bought into the Obama hype. I opposed him vociferously, but I understood it. I understood the excitement. I understood sort of the upbeat, hope, aspirational stuff and why it appealed to so many people. And you look at the tone and the dour, angry, scolding tenor of the left today, even as they're in control of basically everything. And it feels very different, at least from the uplifting notes of hope and change. So maybe there's some people getting disillusioned. Maybe not so excited about that anymore. Maybe more bills to pay, more reality to deal with, kids on the way. Zoomers out there screaming their heads off about pronouns and a bunch of, like, you know, wagging of fingers. That's enough to make people maybe take a second look at the party they once thought they would never support. We'll see. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican, South Carolina, one of our favorites, is next. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday from New York the next couple of shows. Very happy to have you along wherever you may happen to be listening all across the country, all around the world. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com At GuyBensonShow is our Twitter handle. It's also our Instagram handle. Please follow us if you have an opportunity or you're so moved to do so. My personal handle on both at GuyPBenson. That's Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It is expanding. We had dinner over the weekend with former Attorney General Bill Barr and his wife, and we introduced them 
to the finished long drink. Oh, yes, we are proselytizing for this beverage. Always drink responsibly, of course. 21 plus only. A lot more states getting rolled out. You can see where they are sold near you, and it's coming to a lot more places very soon. They're doing the rollout right now. TheLongDrink.com. That's TheLongDrink.com. Joining me now is U.S. Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, author of Opportunity Knocks, How Hard Work, Community, and Business Can Improve Lives and End Poverty. Senator Scott, welcome back to the show. We're very glad to have you. Thank you, guys. Always good to be on the air with you without so, any question. Before we get into any of the politics or policy today, two days ago, Sunday was Mother's Day. I've heard you speak many times publicly about your upbringing, your childhood, and the importance of mothers and your mother in particular in your life. And I was just wondering if you wanted to take an opportunity to pay tribute to her here. Thank you, guys, so much. Uh, to all the mothers out there, God bless your hard work, your dedication, and, frankly, your ability to encourage your kids in ways that no other human on earth seems to be able to do. My mother really did capitalize both uh, the person who was my greatest encourager and who also saw my flaws and who wanted me to be the best I could be. She would tell me if I would shoot for the moon, even if I missed, I'd be among the stars. She would probably say I didn't listen to her often enough. However, she never, ever gave up on me. And as a woman who raised me in a single parent household, who had to work 16 hours a day, three days a week to keep us off of uh, any form of welfare and eight hours a day, the other two days a week, really my example that there is dignity in all work comes from my mom. The person who was the most tenacious force on earth for me was my mom. The one who helped me understand the importance of conservative values that are oftentimes embedded in the gospel was my mom. The person who made me finish school and then uh, fortunately I went on to college and finished quickly was my mom. And so on behalf of all the mothers who go the extra mile for her kids, for their kids, God bless each and every one of you. And may we continue to be a country that recognizes the immense contribution of generations that have gone before us. Every single day, we have the benefit of standing on someone's shoulders, and we should always stop and thank God and thank them for the sacrifices they've made on behalf of all of us. Very well said, Senator. I do want to turn to the news of the day. Have you ever seen anything quite like this, the doxing of Supreme Court justices and these angry rallies outside the front door of these justices, people shouting profanities? There are, of course, threats rolling in as well, and a White House that seems very reticent about denouncing any of it. I mean, it took days for Jen Psaki at the White House to say anything remotely critical about posting the home addresses of Supreme Court justices on the Internet and then activists taking to the streets and going into those neighborhoods outside of houses where kids live, in these neighborhoods with other people. The White House is still kind of like a little wishy-washy on whether or not they think this is all a good idea. God, I cannot have ever imagined the day where we would be talking about the physical security of the Supreme Court justices because of an issue they're going to rule on. You think back through the storied history of our courts, you can't imagine that this day, 2022, we would see angry, vicious, aggressive crowds assembled for one purpose, to intimidate the justices. We know that this is wrong and illegal. And yet, the president of our United States sits in silence. 
Did he dispatch officers to help protect the justices? No. Did we see him take the largest microphone on earth and say enough is enough? We can agree without being so disagreeable. Not a word. No. Did we see this president stand up for the side of right, no matter how you believe on the underlying issue? Absolutely not. It's devastating to watch chaos lead the way in the greatest democracy on earth. Yeah, I mean, this is someone who got elected talking about restoring and healing the soul of the country and to put an end to the chaos of the previous administration. And those are messages, whether you agree with his point or not, that worked well for him in the election. That is not how he's governing. The chaos continues. The divisiveness is worse than ever. And it is fueled by people like the president and others who were wringing their hands every day about norms and institutions under President Trump. And then they are more than happy to turn and burn down those institutions or at least threaten to when the institutions don't produce political partisan results that they might prefer. And I can't help but think back to two years ago, Senator, where Chuck Schumer, now the majority leader of the Senate by, you know, a 50-50 plus one bare majority, Schumer at the time was in the minority. He went to the Supreme Court to a rally and in cut 24, this was two years ago, was really using some threatening language against Supreme Court justices about certain cases and warning them about, you know, hell coming to pay if they don't rule certain ways on certain issues. Here was Schumer back then. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. If you go forward with these awful decisions, you won't know what hit you. If you go forward with these awful decisions, you will pay the price. That's what Schumer said at the Supreme Court two years ago. It got a rare rebuke publicly from the chief justice, even the American Bar Association, which is a left leaning organization. They said, wow, this was too far. Did Chuck Schumer fuel the type of fury and unhinged, dangerous environment that we're witnessing right now. There's no doubt, Guy, that the breadcrumbs of where we are today leads right back to the time before the Supreme Court on the outside of the steps, so to speak, where Chuck Schumer, the most powerful Democrat leader in the Senate, said words that should have been denounced, vilified by every single outlet in the country. Yet, with that level of silence, the folks who were listening to him have led to the strongest aggressive behavior we've seen, not in modern history, but in the lifetime of the court against sitting justices for one purpose, to intimidate them into changing their minds because of fear of physical threats. That is disgusting, to be frank with you. I can't imagine Chuck Schumer looking back at his words and not realizing that the breadcrumbs leads right back to him. Do you think that might be why in the Senate that he now controls, there was a unanimous consent vote last night to provide more security to these justices? Do you think maybe some of your Democratic colleagues are realizing perhaps with some concern what they have helped to unleash? 
Well, there's no doubt in my opinion that the election year brings clarity. I wish I could say yes without any question. My friends on the other side of the aisle all are acting in the best interest of the justices. It certainly is not just a consequence or, uh, that we are uh, not just uh, an instance that we are in an election year hmm. that these decisions are being made. I am thankful no matter why they're being made, that they're being made, but it's not coincidental that these are happening during an election year, in my opinion. We've heard the reaction to what appears to be this forthcoming decision in the Dobbs case. Obviously, abortion is a very controversial issue. It's going to likely, it appears, be returned to the people and their representatives in the states if the Alito decision holds, or at least something very close to it holds, and the reports are that they have at least five justices for that, probably six to uphold the Mississippi law, we're seeing some of this parade of hypothetical horribles now laid out by people on the left, including the New York Times editorial board. They had an editorial talking about how this could maybe sort of, if you look at it and squint at it, could give an excuse for the Supreme Court to toss the question of interracial marriage back to the states or something I'm not really sure where they came up with that example. It seems like they're kind of grasping for it, but they're clearly trying to conflate something like interracial marriage with abortion. I just wonder how you react to that kind of hypothetical game that they're playing, saying like, oh, well, if this happens, who knows, maybe X, Y, and Z can happen next. Well, it tells me two things about the underlying issue, Guy, that the Democrats are not on solid ground as it relates to their ability to win the argument going forward, number one. Number two, you're also saying something that is outside of just the word ridiculous. This would be insanity. So you're telling me that Clarence Thomas is going to rule against his own marriage. (laughs) Okay. You're telling me that Elaine Chow and Mitch McConnell are going to stand up and celebrate the end of their ability to be married, or frankly, in my own family, uh, my brother, who is married to someone... Of a different race. Uh, you, you, th- this is such a poorly executed conversation about an alternate universe that does not even exist in the United States of America. Study after study after study says one thing, that American and our hearts have continued to evolve where less than like 5% of the country have issues with interracial dating. So the truth of the matter is that the issue from a constitutional perspective isn't even in the same light that we're having the conversation. Mike Lee did a really good job on the Trey Gaddy show on talking about where interracial marriage is from a constitutional argument perspective versus where the issue of life is from a constitutional perspective. So this issue of who you're married to is not even in discussion in the current issue, but they want to conflate as many issues as possible to make us fearful and intimidated by something that is not related to who you're married to, but just related to the fundamental issue according to our Constitution, of life. Yeah, and I think that you make a really important point here. I do find it telling and maybe revealing that they feel like they have to muddy the waters with Obergefell and same-sex marriage or reaching even farther here on interracial marriage, or maybe they're going to try to ban all birth control. I've heard that one as well. It's like they're trying to find other things to get people panicked about because they can't really argue well about the actual question and issue here, which is when life begins and when unborn life is worthy of legal protection, certainly at 15 weeks. Maybe they don't really want to talk about that. They'd rather have us look over here at this shiny object that has no bearing on actual reality. Senator Tim Scott is my guest from South Carolina, U.S. Senator, a Republican. 
I want to quickly get your take on the incoming press secretary at the White House. Jen Psaki is on her way out. We've talked about her already, dancing around this question about doxing justices, intimidating them at their homes. Her successor will be a woman named Karine Jean-Pierre. She's been Saki's deputy here for a number of months, I think most of the administration at this point. There are now some statements of hers that are getting circulated and, and new attention because she's about to ascend to this high-profile position where she called APAC the pro-Israel organization, racist, and urged Democrats not to participate because AIPAC is racist. She called my network, Fox News, racist multiple times. You hear a lot about race. You talk a lot about race. You experience real racism. You experience scurrilous charges of racism. When you hear someone with that type of profile using that word somewhat frequently, it would seem, against people with whom she has political disagreements. I just wonder what you make of that as someone who's also in the public eye. I I will say that words have consequences. We should be very careful how we overuse words. The last thing you want is for the concept of racism to become trite and ordinary because the left continues to gin up concerns and questions of those of us on the right because of our party affiliation and not because of a record on race. One of the things I find so insulting and frankly from the from my I led the charge against anti Semitism with my legislative priorities. President Trump used the legislation that we had to create an executive order. Here's what we should all do. We should all be against hate in our country. And frankly, I think Republicans, whether it's the anti-lynching bill, whether it's our support of HBCUs or bringing the unemployment rate for African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians to the lowest record in the history of the country, or even our fight for police reform so that the crime statistics that are devastating the minority communities won't continue. The last thing we need is to politicize and gin up support for this new wave of wokeism on the left. More people talking about something that is toxic. Last but not least, very quickly, earlier today, President Biden said this about inflation and his policies in response to a question. Cut 29. Do you take any responsibility for inflation in this country? Do you take any responsibility for your policies? I think our policies help, not hurt. He thinks his policies have helped on inflation, not hurt. Quickly, Senator, your response. Guy, this is the same president said that we lower costs by increasing wages. He doesn't understand the private sector, period. He spent all of his life in government, so I understand why he doesn't understand it. I don't understand why the people putting the words on the teleprompter, why they don't understand it. In the end, what we do know is $2 trillion in the first 30 days of his administration created an inflationary effect where our economy overheated. The supply did not change, but the demand did. So he is primarily responsible for the inflationary effect that the average mom in the average house in these places all over the average places of our country are experiencing period u.s senator tim scott a republican from south carolina he's our guest here on the guy benson show senator we always appreciate your time and we look forward to next time thanks so much guy god bless keep doing what you're doing thank you very much sir and we will take a break we'll be right back it is the happy hour on the guy benson show stay tuned Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. And coming down to the wire. Apple Center's ended. Reach strike is coming up on the inside. Oh, my God. 
goodness, the longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. I am not a horse racing person. I'm not as hostile to the ponies as certain others. But we had the Kentucky Derby on at the house over the weekend. And if you watch the overhead shot of that final stretch, you might call it the home stretch, of the Kentucky Derby, Rich Strike who won, that jockey and that horse won, they were in 16th place out of 20 in the final turn. And then almost this miraculous maneuvering brought them out of nowhere into the lead when it counted the most, and you could hear the shock in the announcer's voice on NBC. A thrilling upset, 80-1 to odds, the biggest upset in more than a century is what I read, which is pretty amazing. So hats off to everyone involved with Rich Strike. That was a true thriller that will be remembered. And congrats to people who bet on Rich Strike, including our friend and colleague, Shannon Bream. Everything coming up roses for Shannon Bream recently. The best-selling book. Now she's richer than ever. You know what? She should take me to dinner. Christine, book her on the show. I want to invite myself to dinner on her dime. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From New York, it's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Earlier in the program, we caught up with our colleague, Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist of The Hill, author of multiple books. And as usual, Juan and I had some disagreements. Here's part of my discussion with Juan Williams. Last night in the Senate, there was a unanimous vote, and I am glad that it was unanimous, to provide... Uh, additional security to the families of the Supreme Court justices because of everything that's happening and some of these, you know, uh, sort of threatening mobs outside some of their houses and stuff. I'm glad that there was not anyone on either side voting against this. Do you think this was an appropriate thing to to get these people that protection? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's not just justices, unfortunately, and I think, you know, the far right is to be held responsible on this count. There's just so many guns now in the public sphere. Everybody who's in public life has more reason to have concern over their well-being, and I think that given the heightened polarization of our politics, uh, boy, I, I, I think public officials have every right to be protected. They're serving the public. They're doing their work. Uh, agree with it or don't agree with it, but that's our system. And yeah. you can't have people being intimidated and bullied and expect the system to function. That's right. I, and that's why I was so angry about January 6th. That was an attempt to shut down the government's ability to do their duty under the Constitution, under our rules, under our process. And if you don't like an outcome, the solution is not to threaten and intimidate or bully or get violent. And look, I think that guns have been widely available in this country since the beginning of our country. I think what has changed is not the availability of guns, but maybe the repolarization in a, in a very damaging way, I think, of our politics. I mean, the, the thing is, Juan, I could not – honestly, I could not imagine, even if the Supreme Court were ruling on an issue that I cared about more than any other issue – And, you know, let's say Justice Kagan wrote the decision and it came down five to four or six to three in in the wrong direction, in my opinion. 
I would be angry. I would talk about the need to vote and, you know, get Republican presidents and Republican senates to get better, you know, justices on the court. I would maybe even make a sign and go to the Supreme Court and go out there and stand there and 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 chant. I've never done something like that, but I can imagine what I might do under certain circumstances. I would certainly use my platforms and the media to go out there and, and argue my case and make all of those points. I cannot imagine going on to the Internet, onto some, you know, discussion or message board, find some right wing group that published Kagan's address at her house and then go with a megaphone to her house to scream at her and her family, or her neighbors like that is so far over a line. In my view, I, I just can't imagine why someone would do that and feel like they're a good person and also why they feel like that would be like appropriate or productive. That full interview with Juan Williams available in its entirety, along with the full show, start to finish today, on demand, no charge to you at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch reunited, and it feels so good. The team is back together. We're all in New York after a week-long vacation from Cookie. I was off yesterday. We're going to catch up on everything, including Mother's Day. That's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're in New York today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Back to the D.C. home base on Friday. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast. Lots of options for that free podcast every single day. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I encourage you to follow us if you would. Well, now that we are back here together, all of us in New York, the whole team, all four of us here, producer Christine apparently has some stories. Producer Christine is very concerned about what she's calling a coup or potentially a coup. She's going to start her own, like, January 6th-style investigation of the rest of the staff, apparently. And then we're told we are in for a doozy of a Mother's Day tale as well. Let's start with the alleged coup, Christine. What exactly is the problem here? It's quite confusing, Guy, that uh, yesterday was my first day back. From your vacation in California. Yep. Wyatt is off. You are not feeling well. You're under the weather. So a few hours before the show, we had to make some changes. And thank you to Rich Scioli. Yes, pinch hitting. Very grateful. And then Dan has some possible COVID scare where he's not sure if he should be here either. So at one point, I thought the three of you were not going to be part of the show And it was just a little peculiar to me because I was off last week. Were you guys somehow staging some sort of coup? Were you planning behind my back? No, I think that would be a reverse coup, wouldn't it? Like, we weren't trying to take any power from you. Oh, it was a walkout. You were the one here. I don't think it's a walkout. This is all – is that what Wyatt said? Or is that what Dan said, a walkout? (laughs) It was nothing of the sort. Maybe it's just possible, Christine, that everyone felt like we needed one more day away before we could ease back into things with Cookie. Maybe that was it. Then my 
boss comes up to me and was like, could you send me notes on Wyatt? You know, we're going to start, you know, his review. And I go, I don't know. Just write that he's taking over. What do you want from me? <laughs> like the annual performance review? Yes. <laughs> I actually got an email about Dan for that. So I sent my feedback. And, you know, they always ask me about Wyatt. I, I, um, I personally asked our boss to not ask you about me. Really? Yeah. Well, that would explain why I haven't heard anything. Because I have pages and pages of notes. I seriously, when she asked me about Wyatt. And I haven't even gotten to Wyatt's binder yet. Wyatt has the binder of everything. I have my own mental notes and my own written notes. But apparently you are seeking preemptively to make sure that those facts are not in evidence. Yeah, I, I knew better. So the minute she asked me about Wyatt and I gave her one note and it said, I don't know, I think he's taking over my job. And then it said, oh, on that note. My review must be coming up soon, and could you possibly not ask Guy his thoughts about my performance? Don't you think that I'm the most important person to give that feedback as the host of the show that you produce? One would think, but um, what if your feedback isn't that positive? Well, you don't know what I was going to say, and that would obviously have to be given in the strictest of confidence. And I would say this. I can just imagine, like, rolling into the boss's office while I'm up here tomorrow— like, you know, I just want to talk about Christine, and out of nowhere, you just pop up, objection, Your Honor, move to strike. Like, what is this? This is not a courtroom. You start screaming, Chambers, Your Honor. What? We're in his office. This is what I'm picturing. So right. now you know why you have not been asked. Yeah, no, I, I can kind of get the sense. Yes. Although I think I would give you a positive review, especially if you're going to attend my Memorial Day weekend party. How's oh. that turning out for you? That You got the invite, right? Everyone else has seen it, and we've talked about it. I did. This I is did. the party that you have agitated to be invited to now two years in a row. I can't make it. Mm-hmm. I'm super sorry. Why, get that. the binder out real quick. If you could just, there's a new page. We've got to start a new page here. You can't make it, huh? No, you know, I, I didn't realize we had a family trip with Bobby's family. Well, at least this weekend. year... You aren't inviting yourself, offering to bring things. Last year was Jello shots, and then just a no show. And decorations. Didn't I offer decor last year? I think that you yes. politely declined. Very, very, very politely declined aggressively. That I was like, you know what? We got it. We got that. Uh, but Jello shots, that sounds good. And then Cookie was a total no show. At least this year, we can all prepare ourselves emotionally for you. Not to be there, not to join in all the excitement. And there are some wonderful Fox News friends who are going to be there. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a whole. Like who? Well, I mean, your potential successor, Wyatt's going to be there. Uh, the Deuces say that they're in. I've heard a Matt Finn might be rolling in. Oh, it's going to be a whole crew. But, I mean, you just, you never, never know. Never say never. We're just, you know. Is that a threat? You might show up anyway. You never know. Okay. So what happened on Mother's Day? I want to say yesterday, but I was out sick yesterday. I will say I had a wonderful Mother's Day because I had the opportunity on Fox News Channel. I was guest hosting on the big show. And by the way, they have some big news about the big show coming up in the weeks to come. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but a few programming-related format changes I think are welcome and coming. I'll just put it that way. It's a show that I do on rotation maybe once a month, every other month, something like that. So I was in the rotation for this past weekend, and of course we did the Saturday show and then the Sunday show, which fell on Mother's Day, and I was able to get photographs in of my own mother 
and my mother-in-law and give them shout outs on the air and say how beautiful they look and how much I love them. So I had a nationally televised audience to win some brownie points with the mother and the mother-in-law. So I'm feeling pretty good about that, especially since I didn't send any other gifts or cards. Uh, what about you, Christine? How was your Mother's Day? So you um, gave shout-outs to your family on television while I threatened my mother to put her in a nursing home early. So I gave shout-outs, and you just did shouting, it sounds like. Yeah, my mom and I got into... Oh God, I hope she's not listening. On Mother's Day. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a pretty Mother's Day. So we're you, actually we're doing it on Saturday, this Saturday because it, it, it turned ugly. Wait, you're redoing Mother's Day? We kind of have to. You're getting a Hillary Clinton reset button and trying to redo it? Yeah. and this It's time- like, it's like uh, you know how all anyone that you know who's Orthodox on Easter, like, no, no, it's next week for us. This is going to be you, but Mother's Day a week later. Who's to say next weekend's going to be any better? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody's to say. We have no clue. So you flew back from California I did. Saturday. Saturday night. It was a lovely flight. Lovely flight. Oh, I heard you were upgraded as a Mother's Day gift mm-hmm. by your husband. And it was on one of the big planes on United. So you got a little taste of Polaris, the oh. premium class. Do you understand why I'm a weirdo about this stuff now? As I told Bobby when we were walking off the plane, you ain't never getting me back there. <laughs> and what did he say? He said, oh, you better enjoy this because this is kind of a bucket list thing. Oh, like Not happening often. A one and done. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get back Saturday, Sunday's Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. What, like, walk us through the escalation from happy Mother's Day to I'm putting you in a nursing home. So... My mother, we had put Rosie, the dog, into like a doggy kennel for the week because we didn't want to bother anybody with taking care of her. She's a a little bit of a tough uh, dog to walk, and my mom has had trouble before, so we put her in a doggy kennel. Now, my mother thought she was doing a nice thing and rescuing Rosie, so she went and picked up Rosie midweek without really us knowing Okay, and said, I'm going to take Rosie. I don't know if my mother realizes Rosie's a dog, but she went from the doggy kennel to the drive-thru at Wendy's and bought Rosie a Happy Meal. And this then- is the best day of Rosie's life. <laughs> Gone from the kennel. It's not even Christine picking her up. And she then she gets Wendy's. So I guess Rosie, Rosie doesn't, we don't really give Rosie people food ever. Uh, it did not agree with Rosie. Okay, that, yeah, that would make sense. And then my mom had to take Rosie for a walk, and my mom really can't handle Rosie. And then another dog came over and bit Rosie, and she has three puncture little wounds on her face. Whoa. So I— So this was well-intentioned, and it went sideways, and this was not thought through terribly well, but I think it was coming from a good place. Then we had bought my mom a uh, salon, like a hair salon gift card, and apparently my mom, when she went there— Saturday, she pointed to a picture of what she wanted, and the lady thought it was a different picture, butchered my mother's hair, and then my mother, like, told them off. My mom said she thought she was going to get arrested and then blamed me for picking, a, as she called it, a slum salon, which it was a gorgeous salon. So I walked in on Sunday, and it was just not good. How do you find out about this? Did they call you, the salon? No, my mom was, like, texting me in all caps. She pointed to the wrong photograph, like, make me that. She said she didn't. She said the lady 
looked at my mom pointed to one photograph and the lady picked the other and literally just chopped all her hair off. My mom's like, I need a wig. <laughs> all right. So Judgy Joyce was feeling extra judgy. It was just it was. Yeah, she was just in a rare mood. And I must have just pushed a button too far when I asked her, why did she take Rosie out? Like, we didn't need that. Why did you do this? And, um, yeah, fireworks. And you put us together sometimes. And poor, poor Bobby, he tries really hard to, like, mediate. And it just didn't work oh, out That's the well. moment where you go and take Rosie for a walk. <laughs> he did. He did there at one go. point. He's like, I think Rosie has to go to the restroom. So I may have just said in the passing of us not getting along very well that – because um, remember, the whole plan is like she was going to move in with us at some point. I know. It's and I said, grand for, scheme. forget that. I said, start looking for homes because you are not living with me. I'm not tolerating you. Um, we'll put you there now. And that probably. <laughs> didn't wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was growing up, occasionally when I was frustrated, particularly with my dad, I would say something like, you know, I promise I will put you in a perfectly adequate home one day. That's what I would say, but it was mostly joking. This sounds a little less jokey. Yeah. A little less jovial on Mother's Day. Yeah. But, but what happens with me and my mom is, though, like, so then we left. You know, we had our lunch. Was and, Megan sitting there watching all this? Oh, she was, like, in the living room, like, playing with Rosie or watching TV. She's she's kind of used to it. But the thing why, – why are you laughing? <laughs> but the thing about my mom and I, which frustrates Bobby, is uh, – so we left, and her and I were not on speaking terms, and it was, like, you know, I'm carrying on driving home, and poor Bobby's got to hear me for 45 minutes. And then, like, by 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock, my mom called me. We were talking, like, normal. Like, nothing ever happened. <laughs> and rescheduling Mother's Day? And we rescheduled for Saturday. <laughs> when you show up on Saturday, you should bring some brochures of nursing homes. Be like, so – here are some options. See how that goes. And then bring her a surprise puppy of her own. Like, do you like these things? Who takes a dog to Wendy's drive through and buys the dog a Happy Meal? We do, with Roy. We don't buy him a Happy Meal, but we get Wendy's for ourselves, spicy chicken sandwich, extra tomatoes in my case, of course, a Coke Zero, obviously, and then Roy gets a French fry Maybe two, maybe three, if he's really good for. And we put the little French fry back to the back seat, and you see his little nose come to the front, his little teeth, and he grabs the fry and back to the back seat, and that's where he enjoys it. And then we say, oh, Roy, and then here comes another one, and he gets probably four or five max. That's the way you do it, because that's at least just a potato. That you sounds don't, delightful. You don't give a whole meal. And we also give Roy some human food occasionally anyway, so his stomach's used to it. Again, I think your mom meant well here. But mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Mistakes and then were made. by the time we got Rosie home, she wouldn't even look at us. She has barely looked at us the past couple of days. She's mm. probably angry. She thinks like we abandoned her. But she's like, excuse me, there's all this food that you have not been feeding me? What is this? Kibble. Now yeah, I know my, there's this other stuff. My mom also said she really likes ramen. <laughs> then you come back from everything and Wyatt and I are both out for your first show back. And you're like, what is going on? Christine is in peak paranoia, which is very, very peak for this particular lady. Happy belated Mother's Day to the entire Cookie household, especially Judgy Joy. Sounds like it was really something that I'm glad I missed. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show from New York City. I'm supposed to be on America's Newsroom tomorrow morning on the news channel. We will see you there unless something changes. You never know with live television. Then back here for the radio, same time, same place. Have a great night.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.